Last week, uh, we saw Paul standing before the crowds in Jerusalem. Uh, he was standing before the, the Jewish leadership and some, some Jews there in Jerusalem, some of his fellow uh, brothers and sisters. Um, and then this week, he's going to stand before the Jewish council. So this is going to kind of up the ante a little bit. So we go from kind of a raging crowd to uh, a, a group of the recognized leaders in Jerusalem. So he's going to stand before, it's called the Sanhedrin Council. That's what we'll look at today. And we're also going to see how he gets back to um, uh, Caesarea. So remember, he had come in through Caesarea when he was moving to Jerusalem. And then he uh, ends up leaving Jerusalem and ending up in Caesarea again for two years. And of course, there's a church there. There's Christians there. And he's basically a prisoner of the governor. We're going to look at that, too today. Um, one of my favorite movies, and I told the guys this on the, the uh, men's retreat this weekend, and they thought it was maybe, I guess they wondered why this was my favorite movie. I don't know. I'm a big fan of black and white movies, old 1930s, 1940s movies. My favorite movie is It's a Wonderful Life uh, with Jimmy Stewart. It's a fantastic movie. Uh, hope you've seen it. If you haven't, it's good. Uh, the movie opens, <clears throat> and you know the stars, they're blinking. I don't know about the theology and angelology of the movie. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of it for that. But the point is, it starts, and there's this conversation being had about George Bailey, who's the main character. And, uh, and it's always, I always tear up, like in the first couple minutes when they're, when they're talking about this. But they're showing clips from this, his life as a kid. And, uh, and, and the movie actually ends on a really encouraging note. And I cry at that, too. Uh, you know, they're around the Christmas tree and the bell's ringing and he's holding his kids and the whole town's there. And it's a beautiful, encouraging scene. That is not where the movie begins. The movie actually begins in a very different place. And this is the exchange between the two angels that are talking about George Bailey. Franklin, the angel, says, Yes, Clarence, a man down on earth needs our help. He needs heavenly help. And Clarence says, splendid, is he sick? And Franklin says, no, worse, he's discouraged. And that phrase, it just, I always get a, like a catch in my throat when he says that. It's worse. It's not sickness. It's not medical. It's spiritual. He's discouraged. And he says, at exactly 10.45 p.m. tonight, earth time, that man will be thinking seriously of throwing away God's greatest gift. And that's how the movie opens. And it immediately sets forth a problem. And that problem is discouragement. And then the whole movie goes by, and it's all the factors that that coalesce by the end of the movie that get him to 10.45 p.m. earth time, standing over a bridge in the cold, thinking about throwing away the greatest gift God had given him. And I love the movie. Uh, Frank Capra does a great job with it. But what I wanted to bring it up today for is because we are easily discouraged. This is, this is something to do with our humanness, <clears throat> our fallenness. This is not a Christian or non-Christian thing. This is a fallen human nature thing. We tend fairly easily at times to get discouraged, just like George Bailey did. But when we see the life of Paul, especially in the narrative of the book of Acts, and also in his letters as well, I'm always struck that he's not discouraged easily. I mean, I'm sure Paul had moments where he felt discouraged. I mean, you read in 2 Corinthians the stuff he went through, and you you get it, right? Like, I can see how he could get discouraged. But 
that's never where he ultimately lands, right? He, he's, he's, he's not easily discouraged. And, and why? We have to ask ourselves, why? Do we just relegate him to like superhero status and we're just normal Christians, right? That aren't as, as strong as Paul or as optimistic or, or as faithful? Guys, he gets his encouragement from Christ. It's not a different source. We have the exact same source Paul had. We have the exact same source Jesus Christ had in his earthly ministry. The Spirit of God lives within us. The encouragement that we receive comes from the same fountainhead, the same source as Paul, and that is through Christ and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, bringing the encouragement of Christ into us and through us. And so today's big idea is that Christians need encouragement. That's one side of it. And if we act like we don't, if we act like, oh, you put your faith in Christ and you're never going to be discouraged again. Everything's going to be happy and you can put your Facebook self up there and or resume self or however you want to look at it and act like everything's going to be perfect. Guys, that's just silly and actually really harmful because then people who do become Christians hit rough times, disappointments, discouragement. And then all of a sudden they wonder, does God even love me? Am I even a Christian? Like, why is this happening? I thought it was all supposed to be rainbows and puppy dogs and unicorns in this life on this earth. Guys, it's going to be perfect. We look forward to resurrection and glory in the kingdom of God. But that time is not now. This age in which we live, this life, in this life on this earth, we're going to face difficulties. And Jesus assured us of that. But he said, take heart, I've overcome the world. So the first aspect of what we're going to look at today is that Christians do need encouragement. And the second side, the the, the good news, is that Christ will encourage us. We need encouragement, and we have encouragement in Christ. So that's what we're going to look at today in the life of Paul. So Christ will encourage us in two different ways. And we see, again, more than that, but specifically in the context of today's passage, we see Christ encouraging through his presence in our lives. We also see Christ encouraging through his plans and purposes that he reveals to us through our lives, in and around us. So first, Christ will encourage us with his presence in our lives. And we're going to see this in the first part of our passage. But there's two evidences of the presence of Christ in our lives that we see in today's passage with Paul. And so when you're thinking about, yeah, I get it. If I realize that Christ is in my life, I'm going to feel encouraged. But how do I know Christ is in my life? Well, let's look at two evidences for that right here in the passage. The first is the evidence of innocence. The evidence of innocence. And I'll start at the end of chapter 22, Acts 22, verse 30. It says, Now on the next day, wanting to know for certain why Paul had been accused by the Jews, that's the Jewish leadership, He released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble. And he, this Roman commander, brought Paul down and placed him before them. So Paul was being accused of all these things by the Jewish leadership there in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel, for preaching that Jesus Christ is the the much-anticipated Messiah, the Christ, uh, sharing that he came and, and, and died for our sins, rose again from the grave, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of, of the Father, is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. He's preaching these things, and they will have none of it. Some people believe, but some people don't. They harden their hearts, and they start accusing Paul of things. Well, the Gentile Roman commander who's stationed there to keep there from being riots, basically, he's trying to figure out what's going on. He's trying to figure out, is Paul guilty of something that I need to step into and deal with? Do we need to punish Paul? What is this that they're accusing him of? So he calls together the Jewish council, 
these uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, kind of the rulers of the people, the priests, the chief priests and such. And he places Paul before them for sort of like a pre-trial hearing, basically. And then we see at the beginning of uh, Acts 23, it says, Now, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life with an entirely good conscience before God up to this day. So as far as Paul's concerned, he's innocent before God. Yeah, he's standing before a human council, but as far as he's concerned, in standing before God, he is innocent. He is righteous. He is justified. And that's all that really mattered to Paul. He says it over and over again in his letters. He's like, I don't care if you judge me. Ultimately, it's going to be Christ who judges me. And that's, that's who I want to obey, right? I'm not going to obey man. I'm going to obey God. You see that in Acts as well. And so as far as he's concerned, he's innocent. And Paul saw his life in the context of his relationship with God and his obedience to Christ. That's what he lived for is to be obedient to Christ. And so he, he made it a priority to please the Lord and not be a man pleaser, but be a God pleaser. And even when he failed, which he inevitably did, Paul wasn't perfect. He made mistakes, I'm sure, right? But even when he failed, he didn't feel like a failure before the Lord. We talked about this at our men's retreat on Friday night. He knew that he had forgiveness and justification in Christ. He knew that by the blood of Christ, he was forgiven and cleansed. And all he needed to do going forward when he made those mistakes, when he fell into those patterns of sin, when he was tempted and succumbed, is to simply go back to the truth of the gospel and just repent, turn from his sin, turn back towards Christ in faith and receive that forgiveness that's already been supplied to him through the cross. So he spoke truly to the council when he said that he was innocent before God. Now look at verse 2. But, you guys know that's like one of my favorite words in Scripture because it shows a contrast. So he says, I'm innocent before God up to this day. But the high priest, Ananias, think Tony Soprano. In this context in the first century, Ananias, uh, Caiaphas before him, these, these high priests and some of the chief priests, they operated like the mafia. Um, this, he was a pretty bad dude. In fact, I think he got assassinated by a zealot a couple years later because he was kind of a rough character. Um, but the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike Paul on the mouth. Oh, you're going to claim you're innocent before God up to this day? Smack this guy around. And so they smack him. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> he goes back to Ezekiel. He's like, you hypocrite. Uh, you're going to be judged. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me, that is somebody who's not been found guilty, to be struck? But those present said, are you insulting God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brothers, that he is high priest. For it is written, and he quotes Exodus, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So, you can interpret this two different ways. Was he being ironic and going, oh, I didn't know, you know? He was God's high priest, right? Basically denying that he is a God's high priest. Uh, or you can see it as Paul got angry and Paul lashed out at someone who God had not yet removed from a position of authority in Jerusalem yet. And you see that in the life of David. I mean, Saul was a bad dude, the king before David, and David had plenty of opportunities to assassinate him and take the throne by force. And yet he said, he is the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to lay my hand on him. I'm going to let God take him out when God feels like that needs to happen. 
And so I think you see the same restraint here. I don't think he's necessarily being ironic. I think he really is not trying to show respect for the sake of this Tony Soprano high priest Ananias, but show respect to God and show respect to God's word. And so he, he, he really, it shows his humility before the Lord more so than before the, the council. And he's willing to correct himself for the sake of the Lord and the word of the Lord, which admonished Paul to basically show respect to Israel's rulers. We need to be as sensitive, you know, because the Bible calls us to respect some rulers and authorities that we have no respect for. And yet these governmental leaders and political authorities, they have their authority from God. Not that God approves of all the ways they missteward those authorities and positions, but their very existence in authority is by God's grace and, and under his sovereignty. And so we're called to show honor and respect to the emperor in their context and other leaders and things. That's not easy, especially when we find their character or whatever to be repulsive. Okay? So again, Paul sees things in the presence of the Lord, not just people. And he knows that he is innocent, but he also knows that the Lord will judge every instance of injustice and hypocrisy on the part of leaders like Ananias. Guys, he wasn't under, he wasn't retracting what he said to Ananias. He knows that God judges the hearts of man. He knows that every single act of injustice will be judged before Jesus Christ our Lord someday. And that's where the Lord says, vengeance is mine. He's saying, you don't need to exact revenge and vengeance. That's not your place. You let me be the judge, and I will judge every single instance of injustice perpetrated in this life and throughout human history. And, and Paul knew that, and he trusted that. Uh, even so, his willingness to humble himself so as not to show disrespect to the Lord is evidence of the presence and influence of Christ in his life. You go, well, Jesus didn't appear right here. How do you know Jesus is, is present with Paul? By the way Paul's acting and reacting. Like Jesus, Paul was said to be innocent multiple times during his trials. Remember that over and over again, Jewish and Gentile people saying, yeah, I can't find anything wrong with them. Well, we see that with Paul in Acts. So in verse 28 and 29 of chapter 3, the Roman commander writes of Paul's innocence. This is a letter he sends to the Roman governor. And the Roman commander who had arrested Paul basically sends this letter to the governor he's sending him to saying, and wanting to ascertain the basis for the charges they were bringing against Paul, I brought him down to their council. And I found that he was being accused regarding questions in their law, but was not charged with anything deserving death or imprisonment. In other words, I can't find anything that we should be imprisoning him for. Um, and more importantly, Jesus revealed Paul's innocence by appearing to him and standing near him. It's one thing for the Roman commander to go, yeah, I can't find anything wrong with him. It's another thing that Jesus Christ, in his absolute holiness and righteousness, goes to Paul. He appears to Paul. He, he stands alongside Paul. He enters the presence of Paul. Listen, if Paul was a guilty dirtbag, the, the righteous and holy Jesus Christ would not be there encouraging him in what he was doing, okay? Right? He wouldn't be saying, good job, Paul, you rotten dirtbag, you guilty guy, keep on, buddy. No, instead, Jesus shows up to him and does encourage him. He says, take courage. He says, do not be afraid because you are in the right. You are innocent. That's why he shows up to Paul while Paul's in prison. And, uh, and that speaks to how the Lord sees his servant Paul. And it's in verse 11. And I think this is the key verse for this whole passage today. It says, but after he's been smacked around by the chief priests and everybody, 
It says, but on the following night, the Lord, that's Jesus, stood near Paul and said, be courageous. Do not be afraid. So Christ will encourage us with his presence in our lives. And one evidence of his presence is a clear conscience before the Lord and a willingness to humble ourselves out of respect for the Lord and his word, knowing that ultimately he will judge the hearts of men including ours, including everybody else's. And the fruit of that knowledge of God's presence in our life and the fact that we stand first and foremost before God is an evidence of of the presence of Christ in our lives. And we see that as an evidence of the presence of Christ in other people's lives. And guys, we should take encouragement from that. Uh, We also see the evidence not just of innocence, but insightfulness. Uh, You guys have heard this before, probably, but in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, Matthew writes... The words of Jesus saying, behold, he's saying this to the apostles he's going to be sending out into the world. He says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wary as serpents or as cunning or wise as serpents or as shrewd, depending on your translation, and as innocent as doves. But be on guard against people, for they will hand you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings on my account as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. Guys, we don't know what we're going to face in terms of persecution. In this, thank God the church has relative peace in this country. There are other countries in the world where if you get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you basically have a hit on your life. Um, Whether we face persecution like that or intimidation from the culture or accusations from people, we don't know how all those things are going to shake out. But we we can trust in the word of Jesus Christ right here that the Holy Spirit will give us the words to speak. I always think of like Martin Luther when he was brought before the Council of Worms. And he, uh, they asked him, they had all his writings piled up on a table, and they said, did, is, this what you, is this what you're teaching? Did you write all this? And I love his response. He's like, could you give me like a day to look through it, just to make sure? And so, yeah, they're like, okay. So he takes a day, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I wrote all that. And he's like, I did. And he goes, if anyone can show me by Scripture where I'm wrong, I will rescind it. Like, I don't think he planned. I don't think he's like, I can't wait to go before the Diet of Worms and I'm going to say this and then I'm going to... No, he's, he's, the Holy Spirit supplied him with the words to say in that moment. So we've already seen Paul's desire to remain innocent before the Lord, but he's also as wise and wary as a serpent. He was as innocent as a dove, but he's also wary as a serpent. He knew that he believed and he knew what others believed. And that insightfulness into the beliefs that he held strongly to, his convictions and beliefs and the knowledge of what other people believed, whether Jew or Gentile. We see that with Gentiles on Philosopher's Hill in Acts uh, 17, when he's talking to the philosophers. We see that here when he's talking to the Sanhedrin, this council of Jewish leaders. But he knows what other people believe. He knows what he believes. And that gives him a great advantage in his interactions with people. He's insightful. Even so, Jesus says that God will grant us the words to speak. Even We can have all the knowledge of theology and apologetics, everything else. But eventually we're going to have to depend on God to grant us the words to speak and the way in which to speak them as we face accusations. So look at verse 6. It says, so this is after he gets 
smacked around. He sees things are not going well for him, right? This is kind of a, a kangaroo court, you would call it. And so Paul, it says, perceiving that one group was Sadducees and other Pharisees, so he realizes there's two different groups, theologically, culturally, that don't get along, Sadducees and Pharisees. And he recognizes this, and it says he began crying out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dissension occurred between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. These are some of the beliefs that were attributed to that, uh, at least some in that party. Uh, But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And a great uproar occurred, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and started arguing heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. Talking about Jesus appearing to him on the road to Damascus and uh, some of the other things he claimed, like Jesus uh, appearing to people after he died, uh, various things. And so they're saying maybe he did hear from a spirit or an angel. You know, we don't find anything wrong with this guy. And when a great dissension occurred, the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. And he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Unlikely rescue by the, you know, the, uh, uh, the Roman commander and the Gentile Roman soldiers that are occupying Israel end up becoming his rescuers in this case. Um, I, I was thinking about just a way to illustrate... Uh, particularly the first evidence, not so much um, the insightfulness. I mean, you can look at Martin Luther and situations like that where God supplies words uh, in those moments, but really the innocence. How do we know that Christ is in our lives, that he's present with us by the way we embrace the innocence we have in Christ, our justification, uh, and by the way we live, wanting to be obedient to, to Christ? And so on Friday at our men's retreat, all of us were coming in hot, you know, we're coming in off hard weeks, sin struggles, doubts, disagreements, conflicts, anxieties, fears, all this stuff. And there's nothing that's going to torpedo a men's retreat quicker than not dealing with all that stuff on the front end and just trying to kind of like put on a smiley face and just do some stuff and do some meditation on some scripture and whatnot, right? We had to deal with all that stuff. So on Friday night, uh, we were going to have everyone write down their worries and fears, and then on another sheet of paper on the back of the sheet of paper, write down all their current sin struggles and the things that are producing a sense of guilt and shame in their life. And uh, we were going to throw it in a campfire, but it turns out there's a burn ban in the county. So I was like, well, we've got all these lists of people's like sin struggles and stuff and all this personal stuff. So any, we, we, uh, Kevin came up with this, but we basically just got two pieces of wood that we brought out, some leftover lumber, and we made a cross, and everyone just came up, they folded up their paper real small, and they just hammered it into the cross, the cross beam on the cross. And so the whole retreat, we had this cross up behind where everyone was facing with all of our anxieties, fears, worries, conflicts, sin, the, the, the guilt that we felt about things, the shame that we felt about things, and we just put it on the cross. We left it at the cross. And man, that blessed me. That cleared the decks for me to actually have a productive, spiritually productive, and relationally productive time at the men's retreat. And uh, I just think about that. That freedom from guilt and shame in particular, that ability to leave our burdens at the foot of the cross, is, is characteristic of our relationship with Christ and the presence of Christ in our lives. 
He's constantly reminding us of those things. And one time I, I was with a friend and I was giving him a ride home and we ended up talking late. And he's a guy that grew up with me. He's not a Christian. Um, I think he's agnostic or may, maybe atheist now. But uh, he was asking me questions because he had seen the change in my life from coming to faith. I've told you this story before, but um, he knew all these terrible things I had done growing up as a middle schooler, high schooler, young adult, the things I'd said, the things I'd done, all this stuff. A lot of brokenness, a lot of just stuff. And he had done it too. He'd been right alongside me in it. And he goes, are you telling me that you don't feel any guilt or shame about any of that stuff you did? And, and, and I was like, dude, you don't know the half of what I did and said. And yes, you're exactly right. I don't feel guilt and shame about that. I'm not walking around hobbled by this sense of feeling ashamed for all these things I did. I said, I'm not proud of those things. You know, I don't like hurting people and acting selfishly and doing all that stuff. But I'm certainly not bearing guilt and shame. And I told him why. I got to share the gospel with him. I said, that's why God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. is so that he would die for our sins on the cross and, and put away our guilt and shame and provide not just forgiveness, but cleansing and righteousness and redemption and justification and adoption as sons and daughters in God's family. Reconciled relationship with our creator. And he looked at me, and I think he believed me. <laughs> I don't know why he wouldn't. But he looked at me and said, I don't believe you. And I think what he really meant is, I can't believe you because I'm not there. And I, I pray to God he would be someday. But do you realize that the Lord has come near to you because you have been justified and made holy and righteous in him? Do you realize that, that he's present in your life? Because that should be a huge encouragement to you. He's never appeared to me physically, bodily, in his glorified state like he did to Paul here. And yet, Jesus has appeared to me, and I guarantee you he's appeared to you. How? Through his word, encouraging us about the truths of Scripture, through his people, bringing the truth of Scripture into our lives to remind us of the gospel, to preach the gospel to us when we forget it or, or turn away from it, to point us back to Christ, reminding us of our innocence by encouraging us to remain humble and leave ultimate judgment to the Lord. When you're all bent out of shape and, and full of rage and vengeance and anger. And we're reminded that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And we can let go of that burden. You know, that's, that's, that's the presence of Christ in our life. And it should be a great encouragement to us. Do you recognize your innocence before God? Are you striving to keep a clear conscience by remaining obedient to the Lord? Guys, that's all that matters. Is that we're obedient to the Lord. So Christ encourages us with his presence in our lives. He also encourages us with his plans and purposes in our lives. In the rest of our passage, we see how divine plans always foil human plots. Do you know when human plots foil God's plans? Never. Do you know when human plots uh, work out? When God allows them to. Do you know why God allowed Satan to accomplish what he accomplished through the suffering and death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is so that he would be our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's so that he would accomplish salvation for all of us, the greatest good imaginable through the most atrocious, wicked thing ever done. When do human plots work out? When God allows them to and is working in, around, behind, under, beneath, over, before, to accomplish his plans and purposes because he's sovereign. So in verse uh, 11, 
That divine plan is foretold. Look at what he says. The Lord plans to send Paul to Rome. He says, it says, But on the following night, the Lord stood near him and said, Be courageous, for as you have testified to the truth about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome also. So he foretells the divine plan. When Jesus says, we're going to go the other side of the lake, I don't care how big the storm is or how big the waves are, you're going to get to the other side of the lake. He knew that. That's why he's asleep in the bow. The disciples didn't know that. They didn't trust that if he said, we're going to go here, we're going to get there somehow. You know, that's the whole thing about Abraham. If God said he's going to give me nations and kings through my promised son that was begotten through my wife that couldn't have children when she was 90, Isaac, and now you're telling me to sacrifice him, then I trust that if God promised that he's going to provide through Isaac and I sacrifice him, then he's going to raise him from the dead and accomplish his promises. That's the kind of God we serve. Now, we don't always know exactly what he's promising, but I guarantee you this, even if you don't know what he's doing, you can rest assured in the fact that whatever his plans and purposes are for your life, he will accomplish them. It's going to take some zigs and zags that you didn't anticipate, that I didn't anticipate, but he will never be thwarted in his plans by human plots, mere human plots. So in verses 12 to 15, another human plot is formed. They've already tried to kill Paul like multiple times, right? They lowered him out of a basket on the wall of Damascus when he first became a Christian because they wanted to kill him. They formed a plot. He was on his way. He was going to take a ship back to Jerusalem uh, when he was in Corinth, and they formed a plot, and he ended up going the land route back through Macedonia. There's all sorts of plots around Paul, right? But God wasn't done with him yet. And so we see this human plot formed to try and prevent Paul from accomplishing the divine plan. Look at verse 12. It says, When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and put themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have put ourselves under an oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. And as for us, we are ready to kill him before he comes near this place. So that's the plot. Kind of ironic, isn't it? Spoiler alert, they didn't kill Paul. Spoiler alert, I don't think any of them starved themselves to death. Uh, There were some exceptions in some of the Jewish teachings. If you weren't able to fulfill an oath that you could kind of get out of it, it was like a loophole. But the the irony is like, oh, we're not going to eat or drink anything until we kill Paul. Well, that wasn't God's will, so they didn't. In verses 16 through 30, this human plot is foiled. And look at how God does it. It says in 16, but the son of Paul's sister... You know, Paul had a family. He had a sister who had a son who was there in Jerusalem. So the son of Paul's sister heard about their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to himself and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me over to him and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and, stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately. What is it that you have to report to me? And the the nephew said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are in hiding to ambush him. And these men have put themselves under an oath not to eat or drink until they kill him. And now they are ready and waiting for assurance from you. 
Then the commander let the young man go, instructing him, Tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, Get two hundred soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter with the following content. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I, he kind of puts himself in a good light here, by the way. He doesn't mention that he was about to like uh, flog a Roman citizen who had not been accused of any crime. He leaves all that out, right? but it's his letter, right? Uh, he says, when this man was seized and when they were about to kill him, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him after learning that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the basis for the charges they were bringing against him, I brought him down to their council, and I found that he was being accused regarding questions in their law, but he was not charged with anything deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So that's how the plot was foiled, in the most unlikely of ways, through some Roman commander. In verses 31 to 35, those are the last verses in our passage, we see the divine plan fulfilled. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to uh, Antipatris. Uh, But on the next day, they let the horsemen go on with him, and they returned to the barracks. When these horsemen had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. Now when they had read it, he also asked from what province Paul was. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia... He said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive as well, giving orders for Paul to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So, folks, this is exactly what had been predicted just a few days earlier. Where? In Caesarea. Remember, uh, the prophet Agabus had come as Paul was coming into Jerusalem, had come out from Jerusalem and said, hey, and this was in Acts 21. He basically said, listen, he takes his belt and binds him and says the, the The person who owns this belt is going to be bound and handed over to the Gentiles and basically imprisoned, and there's all this hard stuff. And that's when all the Christians in Caesarea and all the people traveling with them are like, Paul, Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem. All this bad stuff's going to happen to you. And Paul's like, why are you breaking my heart? Like, this is where I have to go. This is where God wants me to go. And he goes, I'm ready to face more than imprisonment. I'm ready to face death in obedience to the Lord. And sure enough, a couple days later, he comes back with this like 470 Roman soldiers or whatever. I guess it was 200 at the time or 70. Uh, and he's, you know, a prisoner. And he's like, well, I guess that prophecy was accurate, you know. But he ends up staying there for two whole years in Caesarea while all this political stuff happens around him. So Paul ends up right back in Caesarea. Um, and I imagine his presence there was hugely encouraging for that church. Wouldn't that be cool to go, look, like what God said was going to happen to him. God called him there. God said hard stuff was going to happen. Hard stuff did happen, but he's still fulfilling God's will in his life. And God is still showing his faithfulness to Paul to accomplish his plans and purposes. And he gets to share that testimony over and over again with this young little church in Caesarea. I think that's pretty cool. So the point is that we can be encouraged that divine plans will always foil human plots. The Lord's will will be done no matter what. But it won't always work out the way we think it will or the way we want it to. Isn't that true? So what difficulties are you going through in your life? Folks, Christ is with you. 
If you are in Christ, you belong to Him. If you are in Christ, you are indwelled by His Spirit, and the Father and the Son take up their residence in you through the Spirit. He cares for you. He's with you. He promised at the Great Commission, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you even until the end of the age with His church, His body, in fact. He's working in and through us and around us and behind us and beneath us and above us and in every way you can imagine or even can't imagine. So don't switch to self-effort or you might find yourself working against the Lord. You realize the guys that took the vow to kill Paul, they thought they were doing God's work too. You know when Paul was stoning Stephen, the first Christian martyr, to death in that same city, he thought he was doing the Lord's work? And remember, it was Paul's mentor, the rabbi Gamaliel, who told the council, hey guys, if this Christian thing, this church thing, is not of God, it's not going to work out. Just like every other quote-unquote Messiah that's risen up and said there's something special, and the Romans have just conquered them, right? And their, their followers have dissipated. But Gamaliel, Paul's mentor, said this to the council in Acts 5. He said, but if it's from the Lord, be careful, because you might find yourself working against the Lord's purposes, i.e., that's not where you want to be. And that's not where Paul wanted to be, and that's not where we want to be. So listen, like George Bailey, we can be overwhelmed by medical stuff. You know, Zuzu was sick, right? Her, her flower was dying. Had, you remember this? Zuzu's petals? Uh, medical issues, emotional issues. You know, his, his uncle misplaced the money that he was supposed to bring to the bank for the bank deposit. Uh, and, and the mean old man, you know, uh, uh, Barrymore. What was his name in the movie? Old Mr. Potter. Uh, called the, the bank inspector on him. So there's emotional issues. There's financial issues. There's legal issues. There's relational issues. He's yelling at his wife. He's yelling at his kids. There's vocational issues. He's going to lose his job. He's going to go to prison. There's spiritual issues. He's standing there over a bridge wanting to throw away God's greatest gift to him. There's all these issues and problems. But when we are tempted towards discouragement, guys, the Lord sees us just like he saw George Bailey, just like that whole conversation between Franklin and Clarence lended itself to, what was that whole conversation about? It's the fact that God in heaven saw George Bailey, that single individual, hanging over a bridge in the dead of winter, and he cared for him, and he sent help for him. And he may send an angel like Clarence with his Tom Sawyer book to help us out, but more likely he's going to encourage us by reminding us of his presence in our life and his plans and purposes for our life in just the ways we saw in today's passage. And so before discouragement sets in, let's turn to the Lord and let's turn to the Lord together, church. Next week, we're not going to have a sermon. That's why I preached a little long for you today because I know you're going to miss it. Uh, we're going to have the fall carnival. It's going to be great. When we come back in November, we're going to see Paul moving closer and closer to God's goal, God's purpose for him as he heads to Rome. Okay?